Uh, and uh, we will go ahead and, and get into our sermon today, which we are going to be looking at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, uh, I will be reading it out of the New Living uh, Translation today, if you got your uh, Bible apps. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the psalm where David basically uh, confesses his sin. Uh, and so let me explain the story. Let me get you caught up on uh, what Psalm 51 is all about. Now, as I've said, and let me just take one step back again. The Psalms, uh, most of them uh, are, are written by David, but not all of them. There were other authors of Psalms, even though we have been looking at mostly of David's Psalms. And I think it's easier to kind of read David's songs because we know about his life. Uh, some of the other authors of Psalms, we don't really know much about them. Some of them were priests, uh, and they wrote some very beautiful songs. But um, most of the Psalms were used as uh, songs of worship uh, during the, the time of Israel's you know, reign and, and when they would uh, go to the temple. And these were the songs that would have been pulled out, which is why a lot of these Psalms have been, even today, turned into contemporary worship songs uh, because they're all very heartfelt, they're all very directed towards God, um, they're all very honest, that's what I love about the Psalms. In fact, we're going to look at Psalm 51, it is a very real, raw, and honest Psalm that David pens. And he does it in probably one of the most broken times of his life. It's not some guy going, hey, look how great I am, and look what, oh, God, and even, you know, sometimes even when we feel puffed up, we still give God some credit for some things, and, you know, oh, God, you're great, but, you know, look how great we are, and all that stuff. This is not one of those psalms. This is not even close to anything like that. This is all about David being repentive, being open and honest, and so we're going to look at that today. Before we do that, uh, I, go ahead and just write this scripture down and, and take a look at it. But Matthew 9, 13 says this, and I don't have it uh, on PowerPoint, so just uh, listen, and then you can go at some point and read it. But if you wanted to write it down, Matthew 9, 13 says this, but go and learn what this means. These were Jesus' words. This is actually Jesus speaking to us. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me explain what Jesus is saying. See, the, at this time, the Jews were, uh, they only knew about, you know, uh, this style of repentance as, as bringing offerings and sacrifices to God. Okay, you all kind of understand that concept. They would, they would kill an animal and they would bring it and that, that was supposed to be representative of their sin. But what was happening, and by the way, this happens to all of us, we can get caught up in the doing, right? We can do something and it could not be heartfelt anymore. And by the way, this was an epidemic. Now, when Jesus was saying these words, this has become an epidemic in the people of Israel, the Jews, that they were just going through the motions. And so what Jesus is saying, and by the way, Jesus is speaking even on behalf of the Father, He's saying it's not about sacrifice, meaning it's not about just the actions of doing something. I want your heart. I want it to be real. And then he also says, and listen, I, salvation, I didn't come for the righteous. 
I didn't come for all of you who think that you're better than. I didn't come for the people, all the know-it-alls, or all the people that, that think they've got their stuff together. I didn't come for you. I came for the sinners, which, by the way, the Bible says all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. So anybody who thinks they're not is completely deceived. So Jesus is already saying he wants repentance. He wants us to have a humble heart, a heart that is constantly examining ourselves. And I love it. By the way, I did not talk to Joanna this morning. I did not talk to Chuck this morning, and we did not collaborate on what we were going to talk about. But I heard both of them say something that I'm going to continue to repeat. That God wants our hearts. He's looking at not perfection. And and really what he's saying is let's self-examine right? Let's stop pointing the finger at everybody else. It's your fault. And by the way, I have done this. I grew, you guys all know my story. I'm not going to get into it in depth, but I, uh, for a very long time, I was angry at my parents, and I blamed them. I blamed them. This is why I'm this way right now. This is why I you know, have these issues or this. It's your fault. And at some point, even though, yes, did, how, did their choices in life affect me? Yes. But now I have choices to make. And now my choice is to humble myself and say, you know what, despite the way I grew up, despite the, the, the life, I w- you know, the cards that I were dealt, the life that I was handed, despite all of that, I am going to humble myself. I am going to recognize, as, as Joanna said, that I am a sinner and I am in need of a savior and I'm going to start with me. If you guys want to see change in this world, if you want to see change in your family, if you want to see change in your community, if you want to see change in this state, in this country, it starts with me, you. It starts with us. It starts with you saying, Lord, have your way in me. It, you know, expose every flaw, every sin, every, and not to shame, but to change and to heal. I love the saying in the New Testament that, you know, before we go and confront our brother or sister, you know, with the, the, the sticks in their eyes, that first what I self-examine and, and look at the log in my own. And that is how I personally try to approach every situation. Lord, at first examine me. I know I am far from perfect. I know I am no one to judge someone else. But... We still need to help each other, and we're going to even talk about that further on in this. I love this. i reading something that Chuck Smith said. If you guys aren't familiar with Chuck Smith, he was a pastor. He's, he's now uh, in the presence of God. But it said that David was called a man after God's own heart, and this was given to David not because he was sinless, he Not because David was sinless, but because his heart was always open towards God. So let's talk about the story really quick. And I will try to give you the quick abridged version, but most of you know it, right? David, King David, the great King David, the great warrior king, the one who defeated Goliath, right? So what's happening is is he's now king, he's living in the, the palace, and he has sent his army off to fight some battles. And he's decided, you know what? I have fought a lot of battles. I deserve this. I'm going to hang back, and I'm going to stay home. 
It's interesting because the, 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 the scriptures actually talked about, and it even kind of starts, it said, when, in the time that when kings would go out to battle, there was something about the king leading the charge. And by the way, you know, David was one of those who was in the fray. You can read many stories about, you know, the, the great, you know, things that David did, you know, fighting and sword in hand and with his, amongst his brothers. So this was kind of out of character for him. But David decides, I'm exhausted, I need a break, I need a vacation. So he stays back, he hangs back, and it says that it's funny because it says he had just taken an afternoon nap. Oh, how lovely, right? How many of you would like to take an afternoon nap, right? The king just took it, he's just woken up from his afternoon nap. He throws on his, his you know, best, you know, beautiful robe and it says he goes out and he's strolling around out on his patio. Now, to understand kind of the way everything was probably set up, the, the palace would have sat above all the other homes. There would have been no home higher than where David would have been living. So David's home would have looked pretty much on top of every other house that would surround it. And the roofs were all flat. So when it says that he was, he was walking around on his roof, you know, it's not like today's roof. He's not, you know sliding down on, you know, tiles. Thank you. He's walking around and he's leisurely and it says that someone catches his eye that there's Bathsheba and she's not just sunbathing, she was actually bathing. And I don't know about you, but you don't bathe with your bathing suit on, right? She's bathing on top of the roof. David sees this and immediately he thinks, hmm, I would like that. Now, let me explain to you something. There, there really wasn't anything against a king uh, uh, admiring, you know, a, a woman. In fact, it was kind of, back then, it was kind of the rights of kings. And so, really, you're going to see really where things start to get sticky. So, of course, he calls her. Well, he asks, who is that woman? And they say, well, king... That is Bathsheba. In fact, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and he's one of your greatest warriors. And David goes, hmm. That doesn't stop him. He takes her anyways. Well, she gets pregnant. So then David is now in cover-up mode. He has taken a woman that is, that is already married, And he realizes, oh no, I've got to cover this thing up. So he asks for Uriah to come off of the battlefield. Uriah comes off of the battlefield, and he's trying to get Uriah to go home to be with his wife. Does everybody catch my drift? Okay, we have the teenagers in here. Go home and be with your wife. And Uriah, and this just crushes me. Uriah was so loyal to the king. So loyal to his God that he knew all of his brothers were out fighting. That he said, I, I won't go home and I won't enjoy the, the pleasures of being in, at home. I will, go, I will go sleep with my brothers. My brothers in arms, I will wait at the gate until you send me back to the battlefield. And David's got a big problem on his hands. He's like, oh man, that didn't work. So then he tries to get him drunk. He says, hey, come to my table. And he tries to get Uriah drunk. And of course, that doesn't work either. And again, Uriah won't go home. Uriah is so loyal, so pure of heart. He says, no, I would rather sleep at the gate 
with my other brothers than, than go home and enjoy the pleasures because all of my other brothers are fighting a war right now for you and for God. So David sends him back to the battlefield with a letter. And that letter basically is sending them to his death. David says, put Uriah on the front line where the battle is the fiercest so that he would lose his life, and it happened. I contend, and I wonder if Uriah knew. Somehow in his heart of hearts he knew. I don't know why I'm going off on this tangent. It really has nothing to do with my sermon today. But just how loyal Uriah was. I don't even know why I'm... But boy, would we be like a Uriah. So Uriah's dead. David's sin seems to be covered, right? Seems to have gotten away with murder. So, we fast forward. David's king, he's taken Bathsheba because now she is a single woman. He's taken Bathsheba as his wife. And he brings her in. God saw what happened. God saw what David did. God sends his prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes in. Now, here's where it gets tricky. David is a king. David could have anybody put to death. And if you were going to challenge the king, right? If you were going to challenge his authority, if you were going to call him out, you better believe he would have every right, at least in his kingdom, to have you put to death. But Nathan, he, he hears the word of the Lord and he's obedient to God even when death may be in front of him. So he goes to David and, he, and he's got this very, very beautiful, slick way of sharing with David his sin. And it goes like this. He says, King, I have something to share with you. And he says, yes, you know, Nathan, present your you know, story to me. And he says, listen, I need to tell you something's happened in the kingdom. There's a wealthy man And the wealthy man had some people over to his house. And this wealthy man who owned all these sheep, instead of killing one of his own sheep, he went to the the, the poor family next door who only owned one sheep, took their sheep, slaughtered it, and used that for the feast. Now, it was interesting. Nathan played on on, uh, David's past. David was a shepherd. David knew the relationship between shepherd and sheep. And David is mad. And he says, whoever this man is that has done this evil thing should be put to death. Nathan says, you are that man. And in that moment, David realizes what he has done. And what David does is exactly what God would want any of us to do. is not run from it, not fight it, not continue to lie about it but repent. And David still was called a man after God's own heart. So let's now look at the Psalms. Psalm verse one, Psalm 51, verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. He says the word mercy. He uses the word mercy. And all of you know, and, I, and this isn't anything new, but, but mercy is not getting what you deserve. Are you following me? 
Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You see, David deserved, he took a life. He deserved for his life to be taken. But mercy says that you will not get what you deserve. That is what mercy is, and that is what David is crying out for. And by the way, God is the God of mercy. You need to understand that. He is always all about not giving you what you truly deserve. So let me tell you, if, if you're going through things right now and you think, oh God, man, he must be punishing me for something that I did. First of all, he doesn't do that. He doesn't punish you for something you, you, know, you did here or there or, so, or something like that. He has mercy on us. And if he wanted to punish you, you would not be here. Do you understand what I'm saying? If God really, truly wanted to punish you, he would have done that. You would not be listening to uh, my words this morning. Mercy, mercy. Verse two, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. We know God forgives sin. He sent Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice for sin, right? All sin. Jesus sacrificed all sin for all mankind. I want to illustrate to you what just a little sin kind of looks like when we, when we don't deal with sin in our life, when we say, yeah, you know what, I'm not as bad as that person over there. So I made some brownies, and uh, William, William, will you come up here for a second? I made some brownies. William, do these brownies look delicious? Yes, here, let, let's, let's uh, let everybody see you. Would you like a brownie? Sure. Yeah, okay, well, I would love to give you a brownie. Now, I'm going to let you in on one thing. There is something I put in the brownie that you may not like, but I hope that you'll still take my brownies in me. I did put a little bit of poop in the brownie that I made. Would you, just a little bit, just a little bit of poop in the brownie. I hope you don't mind. Would you still like a brownie, William? No. I hope not. Your parents have trained you well. Now, obviously, I, these are bought, store-bought brownies. I did not put any poop in these brownies, William. But that's what a little bit of sin does. It takes something sweet. It takes something yummy, delightful. It takes something that, that should bring pleasure, and it completely ruins and taints it, even a little bit. Do you understand? You want to take these back now? <laughs> yeah. James 5.16 says this. James 5.16 says this. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. You guys, I've been slowly understanding that to confess our sin to God is, is good. In fact, confessing our sin to God brings forgiveness. But you want to find healing in your life? says, confess your sins to one another. It doesn't say everybody, but it says, confess your sins to one another. All right, verse three. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. David recognizes and acknowledges what he has done. That is key. 
It is key to recognize what you have done. It is key to acknowledge and not candy coat it and not try to put a, a beautiful bow on it. You know, poop is poop, right? Poop is poop. Even if I put it in a brownie, poop is still poop. All right? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Reagan. I hear this giggling in the front, and I'm like, did Pastor Matthew just say poop? <laughs> Bit right, Reagan? Right? Poop is still poop. We don't want to touch it. David does the right thing. He confesses and acknowledges all of it, exposing it. God, I'm not going to even try to justify this anymore. It is sin, and it was wrong. I'm going to quote Chuck Smith again, and he uses this term, being conscious of the presence of God. Let me, under, let me explain and understand. Uh, to, let me explain to you what I believe that this means. When we sin, we sometimes have a brain lapse that God is present, right? And let me tell you, kind of, it's funny. I I don't know when this started, but I know it started mostly in my twenties. But I, you know, I started to get back involved in church, and I, I still had a lot of friends. Um, that uh, from school who, who, you know, did not go to church and who didn't necessarily call themselves Christians and stuff like that. So there was this season of my life where I really started to get more involved and be involved in church and, and serve and stuff like that. Well, I would still go hang out with these other friends. And it was funny because there was one of them in particular that would say, hey, everybody, stop the cussing. Matthew's around. And I would be like, why on my behalf? Like, you know what I mean? Why, why, why stop cussing just... For me, and what they were really saying is, hey, here's the guy, the Christian, the guy that goes to church. We don't want to offend him, right? But what if we, kind of taking that same concept, what if we were to believe that in every situation uh, that we are faced with, that God is present, that Jesus is standing next to you when you are about to make that decision or when you're about to do that thing? Being conscious of the presence of God. God is not just at church. God is everywhere, and he sees all. And by the way, despite him seeing all and knowing all of our thoughts, he still loves you, and he still offers mercy. Verse 5. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. David is speaking to really what is at the kind of the root that all of us were born into sin. All of us. The Bible says all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. The moment you were born, you were born into sin. So really, there's no getting around it. We have to acknowledge it. I, I, I read this book uh, just recently and it talked about that this guy was having this dream, this constant dream. And in the dream, there was a sun setting. And behind him, there was just absolute blackness and darkness. And he kept trying to run, right, and chase the setting sun. And he kept having this dream over and over and over again, but it was futile. He would, he would run and run and run and run, and the sun would set, and, and, and the, the, the darkness would just overtake him. And every night, he would have the same dream, and every night, he would try to flee from it. Until one person said, why don't you run into it 
because then you will find the rising sun. There is something to say about stopping, about turning around, about acknowledging the darkness, because then when we stop running, eventually the setting sun will come to meet us and will blot out that darkness anyways. That is not something I came up with, by the way. So don't put hashtag Pastor Matthew. So amazing this morning. For I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. Verse 6. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Verse 7. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You guys know that the only thing that can purify us is the blood of Jesus is allowing the blood of Jesus to come into our lives. And let me explain to you something else. It's not even something that that happens instantaneous. Salvation happens instantaneous. But that washing and that cleansing is something that we constantly need to be open to. Like the Bible says that your mercies are new every morning, God. That every morning I wake up, I can say I am open to the cleansing process of the blood of Jesus. That it's this process that, cleans, you know, that cleanses us, that purifies us. Isaiah 1.18 says this, come now and let us reason together. These are the words of God. God is saying, I want to reason with you. I want to work this out with you. He says, come to me, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You guys, God himself is saying, don't run from me. Don't go and hide. I want to reason with you, and if anything, I want to heal you, change you, purify you. I, I said something earlier, uh, maybe like about a month ago, and I believed it was a word for us, a word for me, a word for you, that I believe that the Lord had put on my heart, and that term was refiner's fire. I believe some of you feel like you're going through that right now. And I want to tell you that's actually a good place to be. Refiner's fire. See, when we go through the process of purification, it's not easy. Most of the time when you're purified, it's through that refiner's fire. It's through that heat that, that burns off all, anything that's impure, anything that, that would hinder your relationship with God. So if you are walking through a difficult process, here, here is what I would recommend to you. I would say, instead of running from it, run into it and, and accept and say, Lord, I am, you know, bring me through and walk me through this process of your refiner's fire so that it may purify me. Purify me. That is what David is asking for. Verse 8, oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. You guys, sin leads to separation. Sin leads to separation from God. And we feel it spiritually when we're in sin. We feel that, that, that spiritual separation. 
or we're not allowing, allowing, and by the way, that's our doing. That's not God. It's not a banishment. It's a choice. It is us separating us and us turning. As, for as long as we are here on this earth, God will never turn away from us. It is us who turn away from him. But then there will be, there will come a day that if we do not repent now, if we do not turn back to him now, if we do not open up ourselves to him now, there will be an eternal separation from him. An eternal separation. For those of you who have, uh, who have been Christian for any length of time, we can all relate to, to verse 12. The joy, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remember when you first got saved? Remember when you first realized that all this stuff that you were carrying was forgiven? Remember when you, yes, Reagan, yes. She's like, yes, I do, I remember. Right? It was probably just last year. <laughs> but that's it. Reagan was like pumping her fists. And I remember when, when, I, you know, when I really gave my heart to the Lord and I really turned back to God and I really gave him my life. Man, I was pumped up. I felt like I could take on the world. Remember that? But then what happens? Life happens. The world, right? The enemy, everything, everything comes and starts pressing on against that. And the, that joy of our salvation kind of starts being just sucked away. It starts being pulled out of us. And David cries out, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remind me how great it is to be saved. That I'm not going to the bad place. Right? I'm going to heaven. I'm going to spend eternity in the presence of God. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Take not your spirit away from me, Lord God. Even David understood the intimate presence of God. You guys, God sent his Holy Spirit because he wants you to know he's close. He's close. He wants to even indwell inside of you. God is not a distant God. That's why we need to get into this idea of consciously being aware that he is around us all the time. In fact, not only around us, but he even wants to dwell inside of you. When we begin to understand that, when we say, Lord, don't take your spirit from me, what really David is saying is that so when I am faced with that situation again, that I will know that, God, I need to turn away from that. I need to not stumble and not go down that road again, that I will have the strength to do that. Verse 13, then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. David was saying that I've learned through this process, and Lord God, that it's not just something that I've learned, but it's now something I want to teach. What I love about ministry is most of the time the people that lead ministries are, are people who've walked through the process who are now turning around and saying, I want to help you. That's why uh, if you're familiar with uh, ministries like Celebrate Recovery and, 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 and you know, recovery ministries, they're usually led by people who went through that process who've gone through that experience and, and how God got them through it and healed them and, and walked them through it. That's, that's why they're able to say, now we're going to turn around and we're going to help somebody else. It should be just this constant domino effect that once I have come to the realization that God has forgiven me, that he has cleansed me, that he has restored me, and that he's healing me, and as I walk through that process, I now turn around and say, I want to help you. Verse 14, forgive me for shedding blood, 
O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. David is admitting right here in black and white what he did. Forgive me for shedding blood. He murdered. David sent a man to his death. Verse 15, he says, Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Do you ever feel like it's hard to give God praise? It's a good time then say to the Lord, come and, and, and reveal to me and cleanse me because if I'm having a hard time worshiping you, then there may be something wrong. There may be something. Unseal my lips so that I can come and praise you again. Let me tell you how to do that. Confess. Confess. Don't run from it anymore. Run into it. You guys, guilt and shame is what keeps us silent. Guilt and shame is what keeps us silent, and that is not of God. Guilt and shame is not of God. Verse 16, for you do not desire sacrifice, or I would offer one. For you do not want burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, and repentant heart, oh God. Hear that. Hear that. That is a promise to you. You will not be rejected if you have a broken and repentive heart. You will not be rejected if you have a broken and repentive heart. A broken spirit, you guys, is what God desires. Humility. Humility. What caused sin to enter this world was pride. Pride, they say, is at the very center of every sin. Because you know what pride says? I deserve this. I know better. I, I, you know, pride says I. Pride says me. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I desire. Pride says it's all about me. But humility, humility is where we put pride aside and say it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about God and it's about others. As, as we were saying today, as Joanna and Chuck, and now, you know, we are collectively saying we need to love others that way, that it's not about me. A broken spirit. The last two verses in this way, look with favor on Zion and help her rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will again be sacrificed at your altar. David is ending by saying what starts in our heart will then start to manifest in the physical. I want to end it on this note. I truly believe that God has some great things in store for you and for our church. But what I am coming to the realization about is that we, it needs to start in our individual hearts. It's not something that we can just expect that, you know, oh, it's going to happen and, and, you know, I'll get swept up into the amazement, blah, blah, blah. No, God wants to have a revival in you. I believe revival is coming, but it's coming personally. It's not this big thing where we're going to gather in a big stadium and, and the, you know, and, you know and, and those things have happened and those things are great. But God wants to have a revival in your heart. A revival between the two of you that's intimate. That's just about you two. And then we will see the fruits of that. And we will see God's kingdom here on earth built. And we will be able to push back the kingdom of darkness. We, we will be able to look at situations that happened yesterday, and we will be able to keep them from happening here. Amen?
Do you believe that? Starts with us. Starts in our hearts. Starts with a repentive and humble spirit. Will you pray with me? Chris? You guys bow your heads and close your eyes.